My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Jamie Keach. And today I got to sit down and conduct what I think was one of the most fun podcasts I've had the opportunity to do to date. It was with a gentleman here in Vancouver. He's a bit of a local legend. He's extremely well known in the city and in the Canadian mining scene at large. Although people at home may not have had the chance to hear about him before or to cross paths with him. He is a guy named... Ali Pedgman, and he is an investment banker here in Vancouver focused pretty much exclusively on the mining sector. He has been involved in, I don't even know how many deals, uh, financings and fairness opinions and helping to build companies and helping to launch new companies. He is the quintessential mining banker and has developed a reputation Uh, for being extremely good at what he does. And I wanted to have Ali on the show, um, and I wanted an investment banker in general to give listeners an idea of what that role actually entails and what is often a very vital service that these, these bankers provide to the sector and what it is they're actually doing uh, to help launch new companies and to, to help build bigger and better ones. For example, Ali was very involved in the recent acquisition of Goldcorp by Newmont. Now, Ali today uh, is at a company at a boutique investment bank called Fort Capital Partners, where he is, of course, a partner there leading the mining practice. Before that, he spent many, many years at Canaccord as the head mining banker, and before that, uh, he was an accountant at PwC. Now, if you got to know Ali, if you got to see Ali, you would have a hard time imagining him as an accountant. He is extremely charming. He's extremely outgoing. Uh, he's a very confident um, and outspoken personality, but I was very lucky that he was a gracious host and had me over to his house today where he showed me his art, where he showed me his multi-story wine collection, uh, where he showed me some of the cool memorabilia he's picked up from doing deals all over the world. It was an awesome podcast and a really cool experience and just a great opportunity to spend time with someone who has seen everything when it comes to mining finance. If you are at home and you've always wanted to understand how these companies get financed, how deals get done, how negotiations take place, Ali and I cover it all in this podcast. I learned a lot. I think every investor at home should be listening to this to understand what's going on behind the scenes. It's going to really draw back the curtain for a lot of people. And just as importantly, every new entrepreneur in the sector and probably most experienced entrepreneurs will get a lot out of this in terms of how to finance your company, 
Um, what are the common mistakes people make? And what exactly do you need a banker for? So after that very long ramble, I'm going to get to the good stuff and I'll introduce you to the one and only Ali Pedgman from Fort Capital Partners. Ali, how's it going today? I'm good, Jamie. How are you doing? I'm very good. So if you could give the listeners at home uh, just a touch, just a brief explanation about where we actually are today and place us here uh, in beautiful West Vancouver. Um, well, I guess what you're alluding me to tell the audience is we're sitting in my office in my home. Um, I call it the affectionate blue room. Uh, it's modeled after a bar in the Berkeley hotel, actually the Barclay hotel, excuse me. Um, which was, it's called the blue bar and it was Madonna's favorite bar, but it was a place during the, my career there that when I was in London, we were there and deals would happen and it would just felt cool. And so I just remember how important that was to my career and my life and the enjoyment that I got out of it. And so I had the fortune of kind of creating, recreating that feel in this little office that we have here. And, you know, I look around this office right now. There's a lot of uh, memorabilia uh, from the work you've done, from personal experiences. Um, you are at an interesting place in your career now because <clears throat> you've recently gone out on your own over the last couple of years. Uh, you've just built this new house last year. And you're kind. Of, I think today we're getting together to sort of look back and, and talk about the industry and what you've done so far. And there's a lot of, when I look around, there's a lot of things that I want to touch on in this conversation. But for those people who aren't familiar with Ali Pedgman and haven't heard that name before, can you give us the 30,000 foot view of who you are, what you do, uh, and then we'll get into more detail as the conversation goes on? Sure. I mean, people that know me, they know that I have a high degree of confidence, but you know, it's uh, very hard to kind of describe who I am. I guess I'm an investment banker. Um, I get to live in a great city. I'm married with three kids. Um, and I've been lucky to be part of the mining community for the last now, I guess, 19 years. And I take that as an honor and a privilege. I don't take a moment of my career at all for granted. And um, these kind of interviews do make me feel a little bit uncomfortable as much as I people know that I have a lot of bravado, but you know, talking specifically about myself or uh, is challenging, but so I'll hopefully entertain your listeners as best I can and um, have an opportunity to kind of uh, hopefully inspire or show the route for other young investment bankers or people in the industry on the other side, how, um, trying to raise capital to see them, um, if I can help them achieve their goals. So we'll start easy then, and we'll start talking about other people in the industry and then we'll, we'll get, I'll, I'll slide in the questions of you subtly later. Sounds good. <laughs> so I think uh, what I'd like to start talking about, and just so we can give everybody context who's listening at home, because a lot of people listening are not going to be actively working in the industry, either on the finance side or the company side, but they have a very keen interest in their uh, investors. Some of them are what I consider professional amateur investors, and they do they spend all their time investing their own capital in the mining sector. Um, and you're going to offer a very unique perspective, uh, sort of... Uh, behind the curtain, I think, to them today. But I think for those at home, what we should start with is talking about the role of investment banking in general in the mining sector. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of, would you be able to give us an idea of the role investment bankers play and the role that you've played, particularly uh, focused on this sector? Sure. Um, and we'll, 
you know, touch on the various areas, um, kind of when it comes to the industry and, you know, the people and the characters that kind of play a role. But sometimes when people ask me, you know, what exactly is an investment banker? Um, and I try to come up with a, call it a, um, a, a similar description. I kind of alluded to like being a Jerry Maguire for the client. So the client is the prospector, the geologist, the corporation, the mining company, and we are the investment bankers, their agent, and we're out there and our job is to find them the best deal possible to help them grow their business. Let it be capital, uh, buying another company, but we're ultimately their trusted advisor. Um, we have to be empathetic to their needs, understand what they need, and then find solutions and, you know, represent them in the markets. And that then the next step for the investment bankers, you know, talk to the institutional salespeople, um, describe why their clients on the institutional sales people, like the money side, uh, should be investing in, you know, the companies that, you know, the investment bankers representing. So it's, it's a bit of a web of people that are kind of involved from the firms, but ultimately it's the person that represents you to the capital markets is the role of the investment banker. It's kind of a strange confluence of skill sets, I, I would say, because you need to be a great salesperson. You need to be good at representing your client, but you also need to have the analytical ability to understand what are often complex transactions or very technically dense projects uh, and convey that in a way that sometimes non-technical people will be able to understand. Uh, are there... You've probably worked with a lot of different bankers, and we're, we're going to talk about that. You're starting that in a minute. But are there certain skill sets that the best men, the best guys and, and women that you've worked with have that make them really good bankers? I would say um, the ability to communicate uh, would be the number one skill sets. The ones that can develop relationships is a number one skill set. Uh, being felt like a trusted advisor is a number one skill set. Um, and I say those as like number one's kind of all equal, but I believe as a good banker um, is a loyal banker, a banker that is going to be there for you thick and thin. They're not transactionally necessarily oriented. Uh, they have deep care for your company and empathetic to your needs as an entrepreneur. Um, and those are the ones that ultimately are the biggest uh, successful, um, I think, bankers um, and, you know, the guys that I would want to more like emulate. Is there, what is the, what's a situation where a company would hire an investment bank? Let's talk about, um, let's talk about a junior mining company to begin with. And then let's talk about a senior mining company and the, the different scenarios that uh, a bank would come in and, and assist them as clients. Sure. Well, that's the one that's going to probably relate to most of your, your clients is junior mining companies. They'll hire an investment banker or investment banking uh, firm in order typically to help them raise capital. So they would come to us, or let's just say I'm their first point of meeting. I would meet the person. I would get a flavor for what they're trying to achieve. I would see their board composition, their structure of the share capital, their prospects, how early they are. I give the client some assessment of what really what the, the market is doing, um, what's kind of hot and what's not. Um, I have this um, philosophy as a, as a banker, I don't paint rainbows. I'm pretty candid. I tell them exactly how it is. I tell them how I feel is maybe things that they need to change about their, uh, company in terms of that will be more attractive to people, uh, to potentially invest because ultimately we have to get these junior mining companies, um, 
to the best shape possible before we get to the institutional investors because um, they're competing against other groups, other junior miners kind of going after, especially now, scarce capital. And so my job as a good investment banker would be is to you know prep them so they look polished so when they go out there, they, they look like the best opportunity available to that institutional investor. So that's that's the where the juniors would come. And so we, mm-hmm. we work on the presentations and their markets. We'll do some market analysis. We'll do some value work. You know, where do they trade? Where their peer groups are? And then we look to see how much cash they have to raise over time. Senior companies, it's it's different. I mean, you know, they're, you know, they're heavily banked by the banks, et cetera. And typically, and it depends on the angle you want to play with the senior companies, um, they look to the bankers for a bit of a pulse. I mean, you have to be careful with how you information gets transferred or field. They know where you have relationships. They kind of want to know what other CEOs are thinking. Uh, what are the juniors doing? What are some of the interesting juniors out there? So it's, 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 it's complex with the, the seniors. And then you kind of, uh, the senior guys would be typically going out using the bankers. They feel trust. They feel that they can get a deal done and help them negotiate uh, an M and a transaction. Mm. Now, what would be the primary difference for people between a banker, an investment banker, and a broker? Because I think often those terms get thrown around uh, in the same breadth. Yeah. Um, how would you define the difference between? Where would you draw the line? Um, I don't want to draw specific lines between the two because there's a, there's a confluence between the two. You'll find that, especially you know, uh, I had the great fortune with working some of the great deal brokers and. They may, they're the ones that ultimately have a book of business that they actually have the clients on their books. Mm-hmm. They'll see deals just as well and they'll see opportunities and they'll work with the bankers to kind of help finesse a deal or clean up a deal or the PowerPoints. So the banker will bring up some more of the technical background, help with the PowerPoints and the valuation work. But the broker itself, there are deal brokers and they are retail brokers that have big books of business that like the type of product and they'll, you know, help facilitate that trade. So um, there's kind of a, it's a blend. And so the broker itself may not do the actual M&A work, but they will be more directly involved in the early stage financings. Right. Is that helpful? Yeah, no, it's very helpful. Uh, and the reason I ask is because traditionally so many deals um, in Vancouver, particularly in the junior space, are spearheaded by one or two brokerage firms or maybe even one or two sort of star rock star brokers that have these big books of business that are able to consistently consolidate enough capital to launch a company. Um, and to my view, we're seeing a lot less of this right now. Uh, you know, the venture style capital, at least in the mining sector, seems to have dried up uh, in this part of the world anyways, and is more focused in the uh, cannabis space or the crypto space or what have you. Um, I always wonder what, what do you think, and this, this conversation is getting a little philosophical, I guess, but you know, what do you think the future is of that industry? Is there going to be, um, is there always going to be a need for these brokers that have, you know, a group of trusted clients or are, are we seeing clients move out, out, or are we seeing them move to other sources of information and other deal flow? Yeah, I think the. The day of the big broker um, needs to come back in order to have, um, you know, a resurgence in the junior mining space in particular. Yeah. The the importance of people like key players in the, you know, guys like Peter Brown, who was my mentor, 
you know, he incubated a lot of these great companies Mm -hmm. that are here today because in the early days he took on that risk profile in his books. I think the, um, what's happened in the space and in general is compliance, uh, regulatory, you know, know your clients. There's a whole bunch of things that have made it expensive to have deal brokers involved. And, um, and I can understand some of that, but I do think that without them, um, you know, junior mining companies, uh, in a, especially in a market that we're having are going to have a hard time surviving. Yeah. And I'm speaking about this. I'm kind of scratching my own itch with these questions because, uh, I think about the role that groups like my group fills, uh, which are essentially letter writers focused on helping, uh, helping bring deals to interested investors. Uh, and we've been much more successful. I have found over the last year, uh, doing this than a lot of traditional brokerage firms. And I think it's because our overheads are next to nothing. I have a laptop and I work from home and we are very, very aligned with our, with our clients, with our subscribers and that we don't take commissions or fees. So it's very, and we invest in everything we do. So it's very transparent business or it can, it, can and should be a very transparent business model. And I go back and forth wondering what role each of these will fill in the future and how this industry is evolving. And uh, I know there's really no answer to this, but I thought it would be interesting to get your take on it. Well, I I think that the role that um, people like you are playing today are are extremely critical. And I'm not just saying that because you're sitting here interviewing me. Um, If you take a look at kind of where groups like yourself that are reputation have got a good retail following you're you obviously see you are able to tap into a group that are willing to speculate they trust what the, your word is in terms of what you're seeing and your take on due diligence so you're in a sense taking on the the role of the the broker um that was in existence before but has been you know weaned off because of asset gathering or the firms would rather have you know book building uh uh, retail brokers versus transactional brokers. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of you're you and a few other groups have kind of fit that, um, sorry, fill that that gap. And I think it's important. So uh, right now, I would say the power sits with guys like yourselves. All um, right, good. <laughs> I'm going to use that line in the tag video here. Sounds good. Um, no, so let's uh, let's take a step back and talk a bit more about how you. Well, how you got into finance, how you got into the mining industry, and the progression that really led you here today, led us here to this podcast. So you are not, uh, you know, a technical person. You're an accountant by trade, right? Yeah. So did you go Did you go to UBC here in yep. Vancouver? Yeah. So what led you into that, and how did you end up working your way sort of through, you know, the accounting world, and then obviously into investment banking? Sure. Um, I've... I've, I've um, just to have some fun with the story, I guess when I was kind of growing up, we were, um, born and raised, born in Iran and lived in the United States while my parents went to school, the revolution happened and for a better life, my parents moved us here to, to Canada and it's the greatest gift they could have ever given to me. And how old were you when you guys landed here? Oh, we left, uh, when I left Iran in 1979, I think it was, uh, 78, it was like five or six years old. So I think in Canada it was 10, mm-hmm. uh, 10 years old. So when we emigrated, uh, here, and so, you know, I've, you know, coming from that background, immigrant family, um, obviously I was a good student and all that stuff, but, you know, actually joking around, I always said I want to be an actor and, uh, in my family that was not going to fly. So, <laughs> and then I kind of realized yeah. that either I was going to, you know, probably not be, uh, probably stereotype. I was a doctor when I was always in a, in a play. So 
uh, we negotiated <laughs> with my parents, um, and um, and um, I mean, my mom will kill me for even just saying this. But uh, you know, instead of me being a doctor or lawyer, I, I said I'll become an accountant because I actually wanted to learn the fundamentals of business. Right. And so I thought that was a good route. I thought it was safe in a sense. You know, it always you always need a good accountant. You always got to you know yeah. be able to hire one. So I went to UBC, did my commerce years there. I was very involved extracurricular. I was, you know, president of commerce and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, built a lot of great relationships and I'll kind of tie this, that part of the story back, which is kind of a message that I will like always send to people. Never know who's going to cross your paths in your days that are going to influence you later. But so I did that. And then, um, you know, I, I got fortunate enough that I got recruited early to become a summer student in an accounting firm. And that was a great opening for me because, um, I got to see a lot of different businesses, how they're run, how the finances run. So I got a good understanding of what kind of helped make or break a lot of different companies, different, different pieces. Um, and then, you know, I have a pretty big personality and sometimes people say you're a big personality. You're not as smart as uh, you should be, uh, or you're not as smart. So I went into the tax group. So I, to show that I had a high level of technical <laughs> ability. So I became a tax person. You're a glutton uh, for punishment. Yeah, literally there. totally. Right. So, reading the tax act. And I guess, um, a couple of philosophical things that I wanted that kind of hit me earlier in career was that I didn't necessarily want to get tied, uh, by being paid by the hour. So I knew that, you know, those kind of jobs had that. So I was always thinking like, what's kind of available to me and, uh, in the world. And I kind of had the, a view. I didn't want to have a good, comfortable lifestyle and work hard to do it. And I wasn't willing to work to do it. And in my old, my the way I kind of saw the world is like you know the entrepreneurs were the richest and the movies and the rock stars were um, you know made lots of money and and then there was the investment bankers and so that was always kind of in the in the in the where I perceived as kind of like the opportunity I I was trying to maximize and I always say try to maximize your effort to the best possible payout and always kind of thinking that philosophical way and a funny story for me and just uh, I was uh, auditing a local brokerage firm and and um, this is back then. I won't mention any names, but people uh, could guess later. Um, but uh, I was doing the audit, and the senior person said, "Hey, you need to go and add the salary section." So I said, "Didn't think much of it," and looked at the piece of paper, opened it up, and I was like, "Oh my gosh! <laughs> how, how, who who does? How do they get paid so much money?" And so then I kind of had this um, be in my bonnet to figure out how to way to become an investment banker and. I thought about going to get my MBA. I applied for the big banks. And then a relationship that I had in university, and he played a very uh, important role in my life, is a guy named David Rents, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. And he um, he started working at Canaccord um, a year prior, and he was loving it. He was a charismatic, big personality guy. And I told him about my dreams about doing there, and I he said, well, you should consider applying to Canaccord. Um, and so he opened that door for me and, you know, then I got to meet Peter Brown and, and then I was sold. I was like, I, I knew that I was in the right seat. I had the right opportunity and I wasn't going to give it up. I was just going to work as hard as I could and achieve, uh, the best I could, um, in, in that space. So, and I've been so lucky and I kind of bring this up every so often because again, like I'm superstitious and talking about these kind of things is also makes me a bit nervous, but I, I don't take a moment of my career for granted and. It's been, I've been blessed. I have a hard time uh, picturing you uh, doing an audit right now, to be honest. <laughs> so <there's a> lot <laughs> <of people. laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here trying to imagine it. And, uh, I mean, it's, fun, it's funny. It's one of those things uh, that it seems so obvious in hindsight. 
uh, that, but it was probably somewhat of a challenging decision to make at the time. Presumably things were going well. Uh, I'm sorry, you were at PwC, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a very lucrative career path there if things go well and the way to partner. Um, was there ever any doubt for you to, to launch into a more... I want to say a more entrepreneurial, uh, a more a higher risk role than that. Oh, hundred percent. Like, and listen, the the stress that I probably gave my mom by making that move um, was probably, and it was in category at the time wasn't like your typical investment bank with the. It was a fledgling. It was it was it was really about to boom bigger in the institutional space, and uh, you know it was kind of like eat what you kill kind of situation it wasn't like you know big salaries or anything like that and you know basically i mean i joke that we ultimately ended up working for free because you kind of you got a draw and then you were what you earned from your commissions and your deals netted off against that and, mm. and it was it was a stress but i kind of always had this understanding of risk reward pretty well early on and just like i knew that at the very least i can get a great experience from it and life's about getting experiences and kind of helping your you know your human fabric become stronger so for the next move or the next role you have a, a different set of experiences so i knew i had to i wanted to at least get that mm -hmm. um and you know i could always go back i think life people get frozen by risk and um taking risks but i think there's risks in everything we do staying stagnant is a risk so i kind of grappled with it and just was um I just I I knew in my bones it was the right move for me to do it was, and it was an incredible opportunity that I was never going to get again. Is there any skill set in particular that you were out to learn by that? Was it was it sales? Was it deal making? Was it was there negotiation? Is there anything that you know you said you you're looking to gain these experiences? Is there anything that come to mind that really when you were whatever it was twenty something working as an accountant that you were like I need to learn this? Yeah, I think I think if I was to. Um, pick one thing that I want to get out of it was all those things I knew I was going to learn negotiating all that stuff, but just the, how to look at a deal and how to become an investor in a deal mm. and was kind of key. And, um, you know, how to deploy capital was something that I wanted to understand better because I mean, it's kind of like call it a quasi entrepreneur, um, situation for me to kind of go into this situation. And then also whatever little capital I had at the time to start investing it and try to make it, you know, grow. So I'm going to ask you a harder question, sure. um, or maybe it won't be hard. What do people typically get wrong when they're looking at deals? If I'm, if I'm at home and I, and I've got however many thousands of dollars or more to invest, what am I, what, what do you find that people miss a lot that you learned that, you know, has given you the, a bit of an edge there? You have to read the people on the management teams if you want longevity in your investments. You have to know um, their reputations, their feel, how they care about the business, how they care about the shareholders. I think a lot of people, they're looking, well, I mean, just to touch on the question, they're kind of sitting in the back. They have a you know FOMO, what's happening, what's moving fast, what's, what's currently happening. Oh, I heard this guy's great or this thing's going to get promoted. So they miss the you know fundamentals of where you know, who the principals are, who the principal actors are, where the shares they own are. Um, those are kind of things that I, I guess for your, your audience, maybe would be interesting. Would you say that's one of the most, or maybe the most important factor for you when you choose to invest in a company 
the people involved, how they've structured the company versus uh, perhaps the technical or geological potential of that of a given project? Well, so uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily call it uh, you I wouldn't I would say that if the people if the people are right, they're never going to show you something that's technically geologically um Inferior. not believable yeah yeah so i don't I, i've never found a case where a group that i trust would come and not with earnest give up a, a um they don't go enter projects that they just think that is just going to be a flash in the pan they mm. actually have a theory a geological model and a plan to make it happen <laughs> so that's that would i would say i wouldn't uh, correlate those two together um I do, you know, a lot of great, smart, trustworthy uh, geologists. It's it's a something as you know, it's science. It's a blend of science and art. Uh, it's about passion and the theories that sometimes it doesn't work out. But I typically find if you put your chips with those good groups, you'll be better off than trying to find a group that's, you know, grabbing a project just for promotion and um, and just for kind of short term. Uh, yeah. Stock gains. So sort of avoiding those momentum plays and then finding things that are actually. Yeah. I mean, you just, you just got to understand like if that's, if you're, I'm, I'm not even trying to say to people, don't, don't do momentum plays because that's, you know, you make money. Yeah. So I typically, I used to joke when I used to uh, be the salesman, sorry, investment banker. And I used to talk to my salesman. I used to kind of tell people when I see certain deals, I said, guys, this is a five skull and crossbone deal. Like this has got promotion. It's got a terrible share structure, but this there's promotion. There's people want it. And, um, so you kind of, I just warned them of the situation. So you knew what you're getting. So don't necessarily. And then there'll be other groups. I said, guys, this is like an excellent team. They're been there. They've been, they're working this earnest. They've had this land package for X number of years. And this is the model. And I've got our technical guys looking at it. It's got a good (coughs) shot. And, you know, we know that some seniors are looking at it. So, and they may miss, they will may completely miss. And the stock never runs and never had time. But as I always said to people that when we gave them money, like we're all big boys, when we invest, we have to be big boys and girls and invest our money and know that there's going to be wins and losses. As long as that person on the other side has done what they said they're going to do, they did it earnestly. They did it without any misrepresentation. There and they miss. That's no problem because then we just pick up the pieces and we find their next geological model that they want to work with. Yeah. Well, I think about that a lot from the being on the company side in, in the past, and that and so far that people tend to be very forgiving when things don't work out uh, because of it wasn't there essentially, but they're not very forgiving of dishonesty or yeah. deception. Um, you've mentioned uh, the importance of structure and share ownership. I know there's a lot of people sitting at home right now who are thinking, what the hell do you mean by that exactly? Um, what, you know, what does a well-structured, call it exploration company look like? If I'm an investor at home, what do I want to see in terms of how it's been put together and who owns what and all these things that people consider or should be considering when they're making an investment? Um, if I was to kind of diarize it, I would just say that you want to see the management that's running the company, the board members, they all have a position in the company, a position, not only they got for, you know, creating the company as promotion and all for promote, um, the promote as they call it capital they put in. And, you know, Mm. people come in different forms that they don't have the capital. Some CEOs, young 
CEOs don't have the capital. They've, you know, they can't write the big checks, but you, especially in the early days, you need to know where the stock is and you need to know who the periphery players are and where their stock is in the deal and where, you know, what price they paid. So knowing the price they paid, the amount they own, that's all been SETI filed are kind of key touchstones to kind of get a deal started. If you see a big share count and only management only owns 10, 20%, you got to ask, where's the rest of it? Why right. at this early stage is other people own it and why do they own it? What are their intentions? And what price they got in at and Correct. whether they're around for the long haul. <clears throat> so do you have any advice for, you know, you mentioned newer CEOs, maybe they're not into a position to be writing $100,000, million dollar checks, but they've put a meaningful amount of their own money in, whether that's $1,000 or $20,000. If they're out there negotiating a deal, uh, maybe they've got the project and they're trying to do their first financing, do you have any tips or ideas about what they should be keeping in mind? If I'm putting forward my first exploration company and I want to set it up in a way that it has the best chance of success for myself, obviously, for my shareholders, and so that someone's not going to fuck me in a, when, in a way that I don't see coming. Because th this happens, right? You see this all the time. People, people maybe vend in a project to a shell, and the, shell, the guy with the shell says, this is going to be great, we're going to support you, and then boom. They, They're gone. They drop out their stock, and they crush the share price, and you know, takes months or years to recover from that, if ever. So what are, what are some things that we should be looking for? <clears throat> well, I... I I think you'd really need to rely on your own instincts um, when you sit there. Um, I give a lot. I mean, this, everything is a, in, in my mind. Like w I always say, um, we're kind of middlemen. I'm, I'm a leech on the system as the banker. Um, <laughs> you guys are the values, the entrepreneurs that are out there. Um, they're the values in, the, um, in their idea, their generation, their passion that they're going to live on it. So I think it's really critical when they come up with their financial partners to understand what their financial partners is playing the whole, I don't know that part of the game. I'm just a technical person. It's only going to be fraught for you for potential, um, error. So, uh, error or disappointment later. So you need to ask the hard questions. You need to be af not afraid to kind of press the, the, I kind of saying you, but just the, your audience is uh, the people that are out there is, you know, what are their intentions are, where are their stock going to be? Ask the questions that are maybe difficult to ask. I mean, everybody's going to have an instinct and then you got to go on trust, obviously, and you may be disappointed and then take a look at their track record. What's their deals? Talk to the group that they did the last deal with. If yeah. they said, I did this deal for ABC co and the stock went from 10 cents to two bucks, call that person and say, Hey, you did a deal with that person. What was it like? Those, they may tell you it was fantastic. They raised the key critical points for us and we helped us get the stock up and they, they got us to a point that we didn't need them anymore and they moved on. Great. That's a great story. Or they can say, yeah, they, they didn't did half of what they said they were going to do. I had to do the rest. I had to write personal checks and then they had all the free trading paper and they're gone. Yeah. So that, so you, you can, I just, I wouldn't play the, I'm a tech, just a technical guy. Like I just, like I always say, I'm, I'm not technicals, but I find the right people to tell me this is good. And I rely on those people. So find some good financial partners or advisors or groups, listen to your podcast, listen to the different groups that you're talking to, because you, I mean, you look at the way you select the people you want your audience to, to listen to. Those are the right people to kind of contact 
and see if they can, you know, guide them, give them a few steps. Yeah. So I guess it's really, it's a matter of if you're going to be the CEO of a company, if you're going to have a leadership role there, you need to take responsibility for all aspects of that company, not just, yes. you know, finding rocks in the ground. You need to understand the capital markets if that's the game it, you want to play. You bring up a very good point. It's something that I always say to the clients. Being a CEO, I mean, listen, I'm not talking about private companies because that's just the reality. Most of these junior companies have to be public. That's where the market is. But you have two jobs. One is the technical side and one's the capital market side. You're an mm -hmm. entrepreneur. You have two jobs. Like it's two, it feels, it could be, you can literally be two distinct jobs, but you have to take on both roles. And that's the, that's where people struggle with. Either you got to, and you know, you could defer to your CFO and all that kind of stuff, but you I, I wouldn't hide if you want to be the CEO of the company, you need to have um, the ability to understand the capital markets and be involved in it and engage in it and compete to take your piece of the capital from it. Now, for guys starting out, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot a lot of the things we talk about in this podcast, a lot of things we're talking about in this conversation. There's no manual for that. Right. I mean, most of what I've learned has been from people I know who have been generous enough to take the time to tell me these things. Uh, for me, starting out in this sort of stuff, Marcel de Groot was a very, very good resource and yeah. pointed out thousands of mistakes I was going to make before I made them. Great. Um, for people that maybe don't have that, you know, we're blessed being in Vancouver, which is one of the mining centers of the universe. Uh, and there's, you, you know, even on your street, we were talking before this, you can throw a rock in any direction and hit the house of a, a financier or an entrepreneur or, or what have you. Correct, yeah. For those who don't really have that or access that easily, is there someone they can hire? Is there someone they bring in? I mean, you guys, you're, you're a banker, you're at Fort Capital now. Um, does it make sense to bring in uh, a banker or an advisor of some sort to help walk you through these sort of stages even for a small company that's trying to do its first financing maybe they're i mean markets are tough these days maybe they're trying to raise a million dollars or three million dollars do, do those resources exist for people well you know i like to say yes you can call any of us and we'll answer the phone calls but you know it, that's you know everybody's got time constraints etc um i think you know i i, I don't want to put the, uh, as much as you know self-importance of being an investment banker I think the you when you're an entrepreneur and you're building your first sets, um, and you're the CEO and you're you're technical, you need to start um, the first couple stages is to find the a core group of board members or advisory group. That's probably the first stage that kind of will help you, um, you know, get that one partner or find that one person that kind of is connected to kind of help you develop the rest of your team meeting. People like myself, we can guide you to people, make introductions, etc. But the reality is, you're better off starting um, just to find the the right mentor. Like Peter Brown was my mentor in the kind of the financing world. You need to find your mentor in the um, kind of the I, as an entrepreneur that's done it, done it before. Those mm -hmm. kind of uh, people that have had that kind of experience. So you have there, I mean, there's lots of, uh, you know, there's the roundups and the, uh, the social events. I mean, there's, there are opportunities in the business because it is a tight knit community and you, they're all kind of interconnect. You can find resources. There's lots of great talent out there. What is it that you did that helped, um, I guess, catch Peter Brown's eye and allow him or maybe inspire him to bring you under his wing? 
Um, well, Peter's obviously one of the the greats in the in the in the business and a legend, and just a, an honor to to have worked for him for as long as I got to work for him. And and, and just for people at home, Peter Brown is the founder of Canaccord. Correct. Yeah. yeah, and very instrumental in the well, one of the key figures in the mining uh, space, and um, you know. <laughs> Well, he if you if you did talk to him when and you will talk to him and um, I you know I said to him that I when I went to interview with him after Dave I said I I'd, I'd I'd work for free like to have the opportunity to sit here I would work for free and so that kind of spirit that entrepreneur spirit uh, he liked um, and I tell this story this other part of the story which I think helped me get into Peter's uh, um, uh, good, 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 good mindset was, uh, in my early days, I had, uh, guys like Gord Keep who works for Frank Justra, mm-hmm. uh, vouch for me or to him. And I had uh, a friend and a client at the time, a guy who's very prolific in the, in the mining business is uh, a guy named Bruce McLeod. And he comes from a pedigree of, uh, mining. And, uh, he made lots of introductions to me in the, in the, in the early, in my early days and was very, very key to help me kind of grow my, my business. Um, but he once said to Peter, uh, I like your new guy, uh, your new corporate finance guy. And Peter's like, Oh, who, why? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, the guy, Ali. And he goes, um, he goes, Oh, why do you, why do you like him? And he goes, uh, he's the, one of the first corporate finance guys that I, that I feel is thinking about me first versus the fee, um, and about his own pocketbook. And so that, that, um, put me in good space with Peter and I got to sit in a lot of meetings and, uh, see a lot of experiences and just, absorb as much as I could in the 16 years that I was over there at Canaccord. You know, you touched on an interesting point when you said you'd work for him for free. I was having this conversation um, with a friend of mine uh, just a couple days ago. He was, he's looking at launching a venture, and uh, he, he wants it to make money right out of the gate. He's got another job, but he wants us to make money right out of the gate. And it got me thinking that almost anything that will make you a lot of money in the long term won't make you any money in the short term i find it's like you need to put in that week or month or six months or five years of sort of groundwork before you can really get those those big gains and i mean this sounds like a really obvious thing to say when you say it out loud but you know the things that do make you money in the short term like a job any job probably never makes you that much money in the long term right so yeah i mean my I'm listen. I'm I'm not. Uh, I don't try to hide the fact that I like material items and and goods. But it wasn't necessarily I was driven by a dollar amount, etc. It was more about driven about you know success and being yeah. comfortable and a good life for my my family. Um, I used to say to people, I never want to be the richest guy that walks into a room. I want people to say, oh, that's a great guy to do a deal with. So yeah. I think though that kind of balance it all works. And um, but I don't, I don't think people need to be shy about wanting to make money and yeah. a good life. I mean, that's just, that's a goal and an ambition. That's what, you know, we're get to do in a free economy. So let's go forward and let's reach, reach for it, but don't make sacrifices. Don't uh, impair your reputation, uh, care for people, be empathetic and give back. The minute you got it, start giving it back because that's the only way that you'll, uh, the fluidity of it continues. I always think about you want to win the game that you're playing. Uh, and you want to win it over the long term, yeah. not over the next six months or even yeah. the next five years. <clears throat> so let's talk about how the game that you were playing shifted a little bit in the last couple of years when you left Canaccord and went to Fort. Sure. 
Well, maybe uh, give us a little overview of what Ford Capital Partners is and, and what, what your role there is now and how that's changed. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had a great run uh, at Canaccord for 16 years and it was, it was a long, long time. And, you know, I did lots of things. The organization was big. It was a, a good machine. Um, and I wanted to give it a chance to see if I can, um, you know, do something on my own, like to see if uh, my franchise could carry forward. Um, and spend more time with the clients, uh, maybe less clients, not to go back to the, my Jerry Maguire reference, but just spend more time uh, with the clients, smaller group, and do better for that smaller group. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to be in a, a, a decent enough financial position that I can take on that to make that, you know, transition. Um, and then again, going back to relationships, I um, went to talk to a, a person that I had a great deal of respect for. Uh, I was a, uh, one of the top investment bankers in the country, a guy named Dave Bustos. He'd worked at all the big shops and he'd gone off to start his own platform and on the same principles. It was, it was about the clients and just having good relationships and making money. Like let's, we're not, we're not the red cross, but there, you know, um, but you know, have that more intimate relationships, uh, with them and work hard with them. And I just asked him what it took to start his own shop. And, um, I thought about maybe starting my own and he said, you know, why don't you consider sitting here? And he, he created a, he started beginning the creation of a platform where to get people like myself that have had good, uh, careers, um, that kind of wanted to kind of focus just on a few clients and work with their relationships that they had. And I got the, um, so I decided to take that plunge and the big risk for investment bankers like myself is, you know, when you leave the platform, will it carry, can your relationships carry, mm-hmm. can you deliver? And I found that I found a niche where I got to work with a whole, all some of a lot of my great old clients as well, and um, kind of be more nimble, um, kind of uh, address opportunities, stay with the the clients. And so Fort has been a great um, platform. So I do the mining stuff, Dave um, and uh, Mike and whole, we have, I think, 19 people now in in the shop and we do all sorts of space, uh, work on different spaces, different spaces. Yeah. So I guess you got to figure out if you're going to take that step, whether people are hiring you because they like Canaccord or Correct. they're hiring you because they like Ali Pedgeman. Yeah, it was, it was, a and, and to my shock and awe, but <laughs> <laughs> I got hired, uh, got to work on some pretty good transactions. And, you know, recently we got to work on the, uh, our firm got to work on the big gold corp transaction. So that was a testament to our franchise and the people and the relationships that we've built. And, and you were representing gold corp. And we were representing a special committee for gold corp. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, what are the, what are the advantages to, for a client of going with a boutique firm such as Fort, as opposed to the can Accords or the BMOs or the whoever, these bigger na- these bigger companies, is there something that you guys can offer uh, that's unique or is there a situation that you guys are, quite well suited for perhaps well i can make this a, 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 a info commercial about us but to be honest we're, we're kind of collaborative we kind of fit into the ecosystem working with the bmos the canaccords the a capitals the macquarie's or whoever's out there in terms of uh giving some independent advice so where we we kind of come in is kind of like we don't have when it comes to especially financings and like we want the street to do the financings. We want them to get mm-hmm. the research covered. So when we can cover a situation, we want uh, to help the the street recognize the client that we have. Uh, so that's kind of uh, the uniqueness of us. So we, we collaborate with different opportunities. 
And when it comes to independence, I mean, we are truly independent and we don't lend, um, you know, we have a good reputation to be independent. So kind of we find this uh, unique niche of being very nimble, fast to respond and give a really high quality uh, in terms of the advice that we give and the analysis that we do for our clients. So um, I guess we compete in certain areas of M&A, but, you know, we are able to sit and do some more free thinking and bring people together and uh, trying to get things happen outside the box of uh, a larger organization. Yeah. We talked a bit about this and it sounds, you know, you, we've said this again and again that build the ability to build relationships and maintain them is a key aspect of success in, in this world. And you could probably make the case for any world. Is there any sort of tips or advice or, or things that you've employed that have helped you meet these first, you know, high quality, successful people. Uh, and then also maybe people just starting out that you see this potential and, 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 and see them going places and building a relationship with them early and, and being the person that they can trust and, and rely on to, for the roles that you fill. Oh, it's sort I, of a nebulous question, but how do you, is there any advice on how to build better relationships, business relationships, and what kind of things you think about in terms of providing value? Oh, how to build better business relationships. Um, kind of always going to the, like the, the answer when you ask a question like that. I just, it's about uh, your empathy it's about your honesty with that person. I think if you're true and you have the care for the relationships will will foster. And it's not necessarily uh, about just the day-to-day business of it. It's about the uh, understanding their families, engaging. Like, I'll be honest, like, you know, uh, another great um, thing about learning from Peter Brown or Paul Reynolds. That's the danger of doing this in a house, guys. Sometimes the doorbell rings. <laughs> okay. Um, is just uh, they, their lives actually, and their social lives weaved into their um, social life. So my friends are my clients. It's and that's the fun part of it. I mean, you know, you saw my wine collection there. I want my clients and friends to be here to drink wines and have that relationship. That's that intimacy. Yeah. Um, that I think is important. Well, that leads me very nicely into one of the questions I have a little down my list here is that investment banking is not a nine to five job. Yeah. You've true. got a family, a lovely wife that I met earlier today. You have three children. How do you balance that? You know, how do you manage to do both things well? There are, the mining industry is littered with CEOs and bankers on their first or second or third <laughs> or fourth wife. <laughs> and you guys seem to be doing pretty well here. How do you balance these very conflicting schedules or very conflicting demands rather? And what advice do you have for people that are hungry and want to succeed, but you know, probably want to see their children once in a while as well? Yeah. Um, and I, I do, I, I have to say that if, if I was to take one, piece of pride about my career is that I was, I juggled it as well as I could have, um, to achieve the certain things that I need to achieve. So certainly there were certain sacrifices, obviously marrying an amazing person, uh, that's super strong is <laughs> critical. Mm. Um, but with the, I mean, the fundamentals is that, is that you can't buy time. 
and you have to pick your slots in time when you're willing to, you know, to use up that time quotient for some kind of reward. So in the early part of my career, we kind of like, it was known that Monday through Thursday, I was unavailable. Like, um, I'm going to be out. I'm going to be working. I'm going to be entertaining. It was a definitely a 24 hour cycle. Yeah. And then, um, and on weekends, just, just the, the fact that I may be on the phone, but I, I did everything in my power never to miss a kid's, uh, event at school or something. So whatever it took, I wasn't going to miss those events. And I, and I relish that today, even though at times it was seemed crazy and I'm running in with a phone in my hand and trying to take a call. And I'm like, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. It was all those little, little snapshots. But I mean, I got lucky again. I, I bought a little place at Whistler in 2008, 2009. And then from Friday through Sunday, I was activity dad. And then I skied with them. We didn't put them in lessons. I taught them how to ski. So they'll never become professional skiers. <laughs> um, but I got to spend that quality time and you have to focus on balance. I mean, you hear so many people talking about balance and it seems such an overused term, but you gotta just know what you're sacrificing, what you're giving up at the time and what you're going to miss, but you got to have balance and it's, it's never going to be perfect, but you have to be aware, uh, aware of it write it down. I visualize it. I wrote down time charts of how old I'm going to be, what my kids' age were going to be, what I'm going to be doing in those times. So I became very visual in, in that feeling. And even today, I'm 46 years old. I'm thinking, okay, I mean, you know, based on the amount of wine I consume, I may not be here forever. So like, what's going to happen? What's going to be next? I mean, should I be doing interviews like this? How do I have fun? Do I want to see my clients more? Where do I want to golf? You know, all these things kind of play into kind of living a holistic life. Something that struck me when I walked into this room uh, and it's sitting over your left shoulder right now is there's a book that says, why does daddy work so hard? And it sounds like you have made an effort to convey that to your family and communicate that to your children. And has that played a big factor in that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I think it's really important. Like for the, I mean, my kids to understand, like, you know, sir, there's certain things that I'm not around, but I, I try to be around the most. Um, I'm probably around more than some, maybe some of their, their parents are and all that kind of stuff. But like all this is out of a passion about affording them opportunities for their level of, of their futures and their comforts and a, and a life. So this is the, uh, yeah, that is the, one of the best gifts that I've ever gotten from my family is my wife made me that picture book that just outlined. Here, just... Sorry. No, it's good. Ali's reaching back to grab the book right now. So this is a picture book, uh, a photo album of the family and various events. And and it's just really built to highlight, I guess, all the fun and exciting things that you guys have gotten to do together and places to see over the years that have, I mean, that really your work has given you, put you in the position to do. Yeah. So the title of the book says, Why Did Daddy Work So Hard? And one of the captions in the books is like, so he can go to the pumpkin patch, buy fancy costume for his girls and live in the best trick or treat neighborhood in, in <laughs> the North shore. So this is, these are little things that just a reminder that, you know, we've, we're lucky and, uh, and a lot of the stuff and the, this, the charity work that I do is to, um, again, give it back, but also to make my kids, uh, empathetic to make, uh, all the great things that we have and we've worked hard to have as a family and the sacrifice my parents made for us, all of them are relevant. Like, again, like going back, not one thing I take for granted. I celebrate every moment. That's why I have all these, these things like the Wimbledon picture up there or me. Those are kind of like things like I never thought I would be sitting center court at Wimbledon. Um, 
watching a match on the finals. Like who, who would have thought that? And, uh, so I just, I don't take it for granted. I celebrate it and I'm not ashamed to say that I'm just lucky. Not that's it. So let's talk about some of the other things you're passionate about. Uh, you know, I, I got a brief tour of your house earlier. Um, there's a lot of jerseys. <laughs> there's a lot of wine. Yeah. And there is a lot of, uh, you know, I wouldn't call them the right word, knickknacks, but things from various charities you've been involved in, plaques and whatnot. So let's start with that. You do a significant amount of charity work. You're involved in numerous boards on the side of all the mining, et cetera, et cetera. What drew you to that and where are your energies focused today in that world? Um, maybe it goes back to something that I talked to, like, you know, when you ask the question, what drives me? Did I, did I do it for some, um, some other goal or achievement or what was an epiphany to do that? It, it came in my, uh, my soul, I guess, to kind of think that it's my obligation to do it. It's, I like to be keep, keep busy. And if there's an opportunity to do something to give a, I, you know, use the word, give it back is you got to do it. So, um, there's so many good organizations that, you know, that need help. And, um, you know, if I, if I can provide some advice or help do some fundraising for, uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to do it. So it's just, it's just that I feel you need to do it. I think everybody should do it. Even the friends that I have that are very successful and they don't do any of that kind of stuff. I, I criticize them. I said, you know, it's not just enough to give money. It's, it's, it's about being active and it creates empathy and it creates, um, a, you know, a different way of thinking about, and you'll have a more enriched life. Actually, you know what? I think that's, that's it. Um, if I was, you know, you, this interview is kind of making me speak out loud of some of the things I'm thinking about, but anyhow, I just, I want to have an enriched life and that, um, it adds to it. When I do a, when I sit on the, I sit on the transit police, uh, board and, um, I, these, these other board members are super smart and the way they think about things. Well, if I didn't do that volunteer work, I would never have met them. I would never have seen that in my, uh, in my experiences. And I learned a ton from it. So yeah, that's is, why. Is there anything you're currently involved in that's particularly close to your heart or is taking a lot of your time? You know, I, I don't want to just pick on one. I mean, I, like I'd spent, I just finished seven years on science world. I do a lot of stuff for children's hospital. You know, we've had some stuff that deal with the children's hospital. I did a big fundraising for epilepsy research mm -hmm. for them. And I had great friends that did that. So that was really close to my heart. Is that mining for miracles? Am I right on that? No, that, no, was, that was something separate. separate. That was yeah. me and uh, a, a good friend banker from BMO. You got um, hit in the face of a pie for... No, I won, good, but he did. Ah. He did yeah, <laughs> let me just make sure. Uh, I raised 175000 and he raised 125000 Carter, that was a shout out to you if you do listen to this podcast. Um, but uh, so that, that was one of the things. So I'm, I've always kind of been involved in the fundraising. I, you know, I used to host the poker events that kind of, uh, I was kind of known for, and we all donated any of the proceeds to charity after that. So we raised lots of money there, but, um, lots of, lots of things to do. There's lots of great opportunities. I'm on the VGH boards now, VGH foundation board. So, uh, yeah. You know, Ali, as I, as I talk to you, I get the impression, I've got the feeling today in our, in our past conversations that you are very deliberate in what you do and, and you've had a, a bit of a grand vision for your life. Um, you know, things didn't just fall into place accidentally, so to speak. Yeah. What are the steps you, you are taking to sort of keep learning and to keep taking those steps to the next level? You know, whether it's in business or charities or personal life, how do you, how do you keep bumping yourself up and what are the things you try to do? Are there, 
people you surround yourself with? Are there books that you rely on? Are you, uh, you know, how do you keep learning and keep growing? Um, I think it's key to find, I, I am, I guess I am deliberate and I take a lot of, uh, advice of another great mentor was a guy named Ian Telfer. Um, and you know, you see how he's done certain things in his career and you take bits and pieces of what they have done um, and from what others have done and you kind of weave what you think is the best of the breed of all of them and try to create something that um, those uh, mentors have you know done in their lives but pick away their bigs and then create your own vision of how you think should should run so that's that's how i i guess i am deliberate i self-assess all the time i I'm tough on myself in terms of, okay, what's next? What should we be doing? I'm not trying to say that I'm not content, but it's just like, you know, we got a limit of time. Let's, let's utilize it. Let's have some fun. Fun is very key. Um, and being, being deliberate in that thinking is very important. So Mm. don't stop thinking. Don't just like, I don't suddenly wake up and go, I've got everything. I don't need to do anything else. Um, it's not really the point. The point is like, okay, so what better can you do with it? So that's, that's kind of what, um, has been driving me, driving me. That's an interesting point. Uh, it's actually something somewhat similar to what I think about too, is that I have various friends and colleagues and mentors that I know are really good at one thing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I try to like build myself into a meta version of those skill sets. I'll think, I think exactly, you know, what is so like, I have this friend who is the calmest person under any pressure yeah. I've ever seen. He just doesn't get riled. Yeah. You, you can, yell in his face and he'll just won't even blink and i always think you know how does he how would he deal with this and how would he manage this person who's screaming at me right now and you know other friends that are very good at going out there and just crushing things and getting it done quickly and i do think it's really important to surround yourself with people that are better than you at almost everything and then just really just try to steal everything that works for them (laughs) i'm gonna use the word steal because that's the word i use i say i steal from people all the time their best characteristics and i try to incorporate them in you know my own kind of uh form and then create your own mosaic and become your own person from it but it's 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 good to be aware of what other people's strengths are and uh you know obviously uh, give them credit for that and uh you know you know best form of flattery is copying so mm. so we are coming up on an hour now great um i want to be cognizant of your time i know you've got a busy day ahead of you is there anything you'd like to leave the people at home with uh thoughts or ideas or maybe even just you know there's a lot of people that are dabbling in the mining space right now or they're considering it or more likely than not they've been dabbling in it for a while now and it's not gone the way they'd hoped for the last few years yeah do you have any thoughts out there that investors should be keeping in mind for the pretty shitty market we've been all dealing with over the last few years particularly the last few months so to wrap up, I guess uh, for your investors, I would say be patient. You know, we'll all have our day again, um, and that day will come. These are cyclical, and I know you hear that, and and your uh, fortitude is uh, greatly appreciated uh, by the next group. That I guess I would want to uh, um, highlight for your group is your entrepreneur clients or your on your podcast is that. Um, you, the entrepreneurs, the geologists, the people that have taken the time to, to learn engineering, all those skill sets, um, and that are willing to maybe one day put it on the line, like 
you are the driving force and there are going to be tough days and strong days and uh, great days and bad days and all those kind of things. But never forget the importance you play in our economy and uh, what you do that drives a whole industry. You are the nucleus of it all. So I guess that's my parting words for your two groups. And if anyone wants to check out uh, Fort Capital Partners or Ali Pedgman, where's the best way to, to do that? Oh God, uh, website. All right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. what? we'll link to all the websites <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the notes and uh, we'll sort it out from there. I have a 1-800 number. Yeah. So, Ali, thanks for taking the time, man. No problem, Jamie. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.